Uh, Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. And just a quick heads up, after I read it, I am going to run to my—I have a prop, and it's not that important of a prop for my sermon, but I do want to have the prop, and I forgot to grab the prop. It's just in my office, so uh, yeah, could you grab it? Uh, Oh, Amy, come here. I'll tell you what to get. It's not like a huge secret, but I don't want to spoil—you don't want to spoil it beforehand. You'll find it. Okay. So we'll see how Amy does retrieving it. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read very slowly and dramatically. This, as you know, because we're not just mumbling a text here. This, 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 uh, the Gospels, uh, all Scripture was meant to be read out loud. Um, you know, not have individuals sitting there just reading the book. So here we go. So Matthew chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, "Uh, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Excellent. I know, yes, it's a bad prop, but it, it'll all make sense. It's, it's just nice to have because, you know, like I was planning on doing it because I, I think it will help just, it'll help It'll just help. Prop. It's like um, Carrot Top is a prop comic. I'm a prop. I'm a prop. <laughs> a prop pastor. All right. So um, I don't know if this is a, a, a common moment. I feel like this is uh, this is not just a, a me thing. But have you ever had one of those moments in your life where uh, you discovered something and you didn't even know that you were looking for it, but once you discovered it. Whatever it is, uh, you, you know, uh, could be a movie, could be a band, uh, could be like a place that you love to go and visit. One of those things, you weren't on the lookout for it, but you feel like once you found it, it, it was out there calling for you to discover it. And this thing that you find, uh, this experience, this place, this object, uh, it, 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 it just has this profound influence on the rest of your life. It, it shapes you. Now, I had one of those moments, and I could never have anticipated it. I wasn't out there looking for one specific thing. I had no idea that this thing and the person behind this thing even existed. It was, uh, you know, um, back in in probably 2005, I'm going to say, roughly, uh, thereabouts, which about 16 years ago, I guess, at this point in time. Um, and, and, And I was in my early uh, 20s, and I was working as, uh, as youth director. And so, um, you know, graduated college, had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Uh, you mentioned this before. And, and uh, you know, so I ended up just ha- kind of happening into the job of, of youth director here, youth ministry. And so um, one of the things that I would do, and, and uh, like as I was kind of living into this new job, you know, I had no experience, no background. 
no idea what I was doing. Um, but so I was just, I love to like read. I'd love to read books about youth ministry. I would love to read books of theology and, and books about scripture. So just trying to, you know, give myself a, a, an education if I was going to be, you know, talking to and teaching kids. I figure I might as well have at least some idea of what I'm talking about. And so um, one of the, you know, but where do you go to find these kind of resources? And so uh, one of the best places that I would go to was the headquarters of the Evangelical Free Church in America, which is actually just off of 494 in Portland there. And they had, I don't think it exists anymore, but on their first floor, they had a bookstore there. And it was really an excellent, uh, you know, excellent bookstore. I mean, think of like a Barnes and Noble for, for church books. Like if you took the Barnes and Noble spirituality shelf and you got rid of uh, all the non-Christian stuff uh, and, and, and you just had a bookstore filled with it. And so you could just go peruse and browse and see what was there. And one day, and I'll never forget um, this day, because I was walking through there, and a book caught my eye. And I have no idea why this book caught my eye, because it was really thick. I mean, super thick. How thick? This thick. That's thick. And it was not particularly, like, attractive. If you were, they say don't judge a book by its cover, we all judge books by its cover. If the cover looks terrible, it's going to be a lame book because you figured no one cared enough to make it have a good cover, right? So is this like an enticing cover? Do you look at this and go, oh, wow, I really want to read this book? No, not at all. Like, I would say this is a bad cover. Like, plain, boring, picture of Jesus, okay, kind of an icon, sort of a dour-looking icon of Jesus, not exciting at all. And it's Jesus and the victory of God. I mean, not even that great of a title. Uh, and it's by N.T. Wright. And I, I mean, keep in mind, this is 2005. I have no theological background or education. I have no idea who this person is. But there was something about this book, sitting as it was on that table, that said, I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to buy that and read it. You know, and, and it was not a cheap book. It was probably, you know, probably like 35 or $40, which in 2005, I mean, think about how expensive that would be today like maybe $30, $40 or something like that <laughs> in, 20, in 2021 money. But so I picked it up and I started reading it and, and, and thus began, you know, my love affair with this person who I would come to realize is one of the most important and influential uh, New Testament scholars of our era. And it all started with just that ugly book catching my eye. And so I started reading Jesus and the Victory of God, and it's just, uh, Wright is just such a good writer, and, and it just drew me in right away. And it's really a story, kind of, a, it's, a, it's his historical Jesus book is, is the best way that I can summarize it. But, but I'm not going to get into to, to everything he says there, but just to say that, um, you know, as I was reading this book, I came to find quickly that there was, this was actually a sequel. And so there was a first book called The New Testament and the People of God, also not an attractive looking book, but also an incredible read. And, 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 you know, this is his historical Jesus book, but the sequel to it is really kind of just explaining the historical and the cultural and the religious context of, of, of the first century world in which Jesus's ministry took place. And so I read it and I just became enamored, fascinated with, you know, Second Temple Judaism. You know, Wright really brings to life these, these characters. You know, you read the Gospels, you read about the Sadducees, you read about the Pharisees like we do in our passage today, but we kind of just have a caricatured understanding of them, right? They're the baddies. Jesus and his disciples are the goodies. These guys are the baddies, and that's all we need to know. But 
but they're much more three-dimensional characters. And so as a history buff, I was just drawn into this world. And right as he's talking about um, kind of setting the stage, he talks about how people, you know, the Gospels are our stories. And he talks about how human beings are really um, narrative creatures. That's part of what it means to be a human being. Human beings tell stories. And those stories shape our own uh, self-understanding. They give shape and direction to our lives. I mean, you get human beings together, stories start spilling out. Folk tales, myths, legends, but also novels and movies, parables. Even history is a way of telling a story. All of them are built on stories. Our families, right, what do they do? They tell stories. And and, and our families often tell the same stories over and over again. And over again. And these stories, you know, what they do is, is they make some connection between the past and, and the present. You know, who we were back then to who we are now. You know, I remember these stories growing up in my own family, like the time when, you know, we were young and, 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 and someone lost a game of Uncle Wiggly, which was this kid's board game, and they cried and threw a fit. And so what that tells you is this person is sensitive and, and kind of a poor sport and has a bit of a competitive spirit of someone in my family. Whole cultures, whole countries tell stories about the kind of people they are. You know, there was a, the, in, in, in 2019, uh, and it's amazing the legs that this kind of controversy has, but, uh, you know, New York Times released in 2019 the 1619 Project. And what is the kerfuffle over that, if not one over the type of story that we want to tell about our country? You know, are we a, a, a flawed yet great nation struggling to, to live over the course of our history up to our founding ideals, or are we, a, you know, a nation that's just really the rotten fruit of a poison tree? The reason that, that there is so much, you know, kind of energy, I think, around that debate is it's fundamentally a, a debate about what kind of story we tell about what kind of people we are. And so the stories we tell powerfully shape the people we are because behind those stories are an entire worldview, a Weltanschauung, as the Germans call it. And so, right, he says there's four questions that each worldview, if something is properly going to be a worldview, there are these four questions that every worldview is seeking to answer with the stories that it tells. And the first question is, who are we as a people? And the second question is, is where are we? You know, what kind of space do we inhabit? And that question gets answered differently depending on the circumstances. And then there's the next question where things really get kind of sharpened to a point. What's wrong? What's the stories that we tell about what is wrong with the world? And lastly, what's the solution? And so, right, you know, goes at length to kind of say, hey, w- within uh, the world that, that Jesus was born into, this was, these were the dominant stories. These were the dominant stories that were told um, to answer these questions. But then, you know, I opened Jesus and the victory of God, and straight away, Wright admits that some of his critics of that book were... Uh, were right, that Wright's critics were right, that he had really missed a crucial question. He had left one crucial question out, a question that really 
is determinative for understanding, you know, the historical Jesus and, 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 and understanding uh, Jesus in, as he's presented to us in, in Scripture and understanding, indeed, the entire New Testament. There's one question that he had forgot to ask, a fifth question. And can you guess what it is? If you read the sermon title, you know what it is. What time is it? What time is it? That is such a crucial question. Because human beings, we exist not just in space, but in time as well. We, you know, we divide years into seasons, and we, we divide life into seasons as well. That helps us kind of frame uh, where it is we're living and how it is we're living. You know, what season are we in? So, you know, are we in a season of flourishing or a season of uh, fr- frustration? Are we uh, in a season of difficulty or a season of prosperity? Are we in the springtime of youth, the, the summertime of adulthood, uh, the autumn of uh, mid- middle age, or the winter where life is approaching its end? And history, you know, it's filled with events, and, and history is really moved by events where, where people are asking this question pointedly, what time is it? So, you know, we think of the founding of our country, and, and there was a group of people who believed that it was time. The time had come to establish, you know, a new kind of republic and to, and to throw off the yoke of British tyranny. And, you know, Vladimir Lenin, 1917, you know, the, the Great War has been dragging on for years and years and years, and, and, and he says, now is the time where the old world has shown how corrupt and bankrupt and exhausted it, it is. And so now is, is the time for our, this vanguard to launch a revolution that's going to culminate in the dictatorship of the proletariat. He said, now is the time. Or the members, uh, Doe uh, and the members of Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate, they, they saw the Hale-Bopp comet coming. And they said, now is the time for us to, you know, rendezvous with this cosmic spaceship. So asking that question, what time it is, that's an important question, but it's a dangerous question too. And that's really, I think, the question behind Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and, you know, one thing that is easy for us to miss with our distance from that is the Pharisees and Sadducees were not natural allies. They hated each other under normal circumstances. You know, the Pharisees, uh, they were the party of purity. And the Sadducees were the temple elite. And the Pharisees thought that, you know, basically the Sadducees were corrupt. They were worldly. They lacked faith. And the Sadducees saw the Pharisees as these, you know, kind of uh, fanatics. But they wanted a sign from heaven because both of them were asking that question, what time is it? It's not that they asked for a sign because they wanted to see something cool, something supernatural, but they wanted to test Jesus to see what time he was telling them it was. Was it the time when God was going to act decisively to restore Israel? When God was going to raise up, you know, some new great and glorious king, great David's greater son, who would, you know, expel the Roman occupiers, who would purify the temple, who would lead this kind of great national religious revival where uh, this lukewarm people would would turn from their sins and and would turn to God and and, and usher in, you know, this great new glorious golden age. And so that's the question they're asking. What time, Jesus, are you saying that it is? Is, is? is this the beginning 
of a new golden era, or is this just another false dawn? And so a sign from Jesus on demand for them would go a long way toward answering this question. Now, you may have noticed this past week that uh, uh, we're taking a little bit of a break, uh, sidestepping uh, our, our sermon series on Proverbs. Because this week it just hit me. I've really been struggling with this question. What time is it? Right? What time is it now? You know, throughout the pandemic, I've always felt that I've, I've had, as frustrated as I've been, I've always felt like I've had a clear sense of roughly what time it is. Uh, at the last Chestertonian, so all the way back, February 2020, uh, the, the topic of this virus that was spreading through China came up. And I remember saying to someone, this is going to be really bad. This is going to be really bad. And then when the NBA shut down last March and churches, you know, were canceling services, including our own, when that happened, I said, this is going to be months, not weeks. Uh, you know what time it was? Uh, 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 masks. I, 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 was, I said, these are going to become a thing. I was an early adopter. I, I knew that last year was going to be a disaster in terms of uh, school, going back to school. Uh, but, but Amy would even thought it would be even more of a disaster that, than I did. And I knew that until vaccines were widely available, people were not going to feel comfortable in public settings like a worship service. And then I knew that life, though, was going to gradually get more and more back to normal. And I say all these things not to say I'm some sort of like amazing clairvoyant. I'm not. It's just that, you know, I thought I was always going to have this kind of general sense of what time it is. You know, what's the general direction? What's the general vibe? You know, I always felt that, that there was like this light that was coming, even in the darkest days, that there was this light coming eventually. And at the end, I would know when kind of the end of the whole thing was near. But, you know, now, like this past week, it's just hit me. I feel lost. I feel like I've lost my sense of time. And I feel myself just asking all of these questions. You know, are we ever going to get out of this? Do we have an exit strategy? Uh, are we ever going to all be able to just live? Are we ever going to reach herd immunity through infections or vaccination? And what's it going to take for us to, to, to learn to live with this without leaving an even more terrible trail of death and destruction in our wake? I don't know. I don't know what time it is. Now, I do think, in one sense I, I have, and this is just what I, I think, I do think that once younger kids can get vaccinated in our country, that that is a crucial step where COVID goes from being a crisis to just another crummy, bad thing that we live with, like all the other horrible things that we live with each and every year. But what do we do when the answer to that question what time is it, is a, a shruggy guy. What do we do when the answer to that question, what time is it, is, well, the, the time, it's the meantime. It's the in-between time. That kind of answer, that makes me anxious. That makes me really anxious. 
And I worry, I, I do, I worry about this community that I love so much. I worry about it just kind of like slowly disintegrating as the months drag on and on and on. You know, there's that saying, uh, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, our own missionary who we support, Doug Beale, told me another version of it uh, when I was uh, in college. He said, you know what? It's not absence makes the heart grow fonder. It's absence makes the heart go wander. And so I worry, I worry about the toll this is taking on society, right? The, 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 the kind of animosity and enmity that's entered into relationships. People just cannot talk to each other, can't understand each other. You know, I'm sure you've had the experience of just going, I don't understand how this person can see things the way that they do. It doesn't make sense to me. And that just, this whole experience just heightens that. You know, I worry about the toll this takes on, on kids and the most vulnerable. You know, New York Times had a story, I think yesterday, just about like the mi- missing kindergartners. Like million kids, just like, poof! They're not on the map. I worry about them. I worry about elderly people who are isolated and lonely. I, I, I just worry about our lack of ability to talk about trade-offs in any way that makes sense. You know, everything is political. Everything has some sort of coding to it, you know. That masks, you're, uh, you know, you're a left-wing person if you wear a mask, or you're left-wing if you get a vaccine, or if you kind of want to talk about how we re-engage uh, in, 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 in trade-offs and, and life uh, kind of go back to living. Well, that makes you right th- right-wing. Everything is coded and just causes us to dig in deeper and deeper. And everything gets framed in kind of like that we're not just living in a complicated world, but we're living in the midst of some great big morality play where there's, you know, very clear good people and very clear bad people. I, I worry about living in a world where we have that type of perspective. And I, I, I worry, you know, and personally, I worry about the toll this is taking on my kids. Last year was a very tough year for us. And I worry about the toll that it's taking on me. I've never been kind of more anxious than this past year or even just experienced those sort of feelings of uh, those dark clouds of depression. You know, and you think about, uh, you know, I've never felt like, uh, you know, more of a failure or just a disappointment. And, and in speaking with my colleagues, I've never heard more people just talk about their frustration and just their desire to quit. Like, I never thought I would hear these things. And please, when I say these things, I'm not on a fishing expedition, uh, you know, like uh, for affirmation or for compliments here. I like affirmation and compliments. Those are good things, but I, I don't want to fish for them, and I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to, to just be honest. Just be honest. And so I keep coming back to this question, what time is it? And like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I, I sure would appreciate if God would give me a sign. I would love to know. But look at what Jesus says to them. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So do we get a sign or don't we? And, and what Jesus seems to be saying is, yes, you are going to get a sign, but it's just not the sign that you're looking for, and it's not going to be one that, that you can just demand from me. And so when Jesus talks about the sign, 
of Jonah, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. Right? Just as Jonah was, you know, three days in the belly of the fish, so too Jesus is saying, I will be three days in the, in the earth. And so the message there is this, that the sign that you are going to get about what time it is, is my death and my resurrection. That, that, that there's going to be death and there's going to be life. And so, you know, all these other things are things that I think, things that I worry about. But the sign that Jesus gives is the one thing that I know. And so what time is it? For now, I feel like, okay, it's not Easter Sunday, but Sunday's coming. What time is it? It's more like uh, what's called Holy Saturday, and that's the one full day that Jesus was dead in the tomb, where Christ's body lay there, uh, devoid of life. A A day that was filled with mourning. But for those of us who know the end of the story, there is still yet a hint of hope, a hint of anticipation. But that Saturday, if we think about it, was the longest day. Right? When the Lord of life was dead. It must have felt like it would never end. And so I ask again, what time is it? And for me, it's, it's time to believe that even though it is Holy Saturday, proverbially Sunday's coming. But on Holy Saturday, it's time to lament. It's time to mourn. And the Bible is full of way more laments in the face of suffering and evil than it is in explanations as to why we suffer. And lament isn't just merely griping or grousing, though there's some of that in there as well. But it's sharing our pain with the God who fully shares our pain. And so we can lament. I lament. I lament the lives lost. I lament the milestones missed. I lament the disruption, uh, the distance and the loneliness, the livelihoods upended, the politicization of everything, the estrangement within our families. I lament the lack of equity in the world when it comes to, you know, rich countries uh, like ours having more while poor countries have less. Uh, lament the degree to which some of us have given into despair and doom and gloom. I lament that we haven't been able to gather in worship all as one and to celebrate the amazing things that God has done. Uh, I lament the anger that has festered inside. Now, early in the pandemic, uh, N.T. Wright, the guy who wrote this book, wrote an article in Time magazine. This is very early on in the pandemic. And, and to me, the words that he wrote then ring even truer today. And he says this about, about kind of, you know, and the article was about where is God in the pandemic. And he said this, the point of lament woven into the fabric of the biblical tradition is not just that it's an outlet for our frustration, sorrow, loneliness, and sheer inability to understand what is happening or why. The mystery of the biblical story is that God also laments. Some Christians like to think of God as above all that knowing everything, in charge of everything, calm and unaffected by the troubles of this world. That's not the picture we get in the Bible. God was grieved to his heart, Genesis declares, over the violent wickedness of his human creatures. He was devastated when his own bride, the people of Israel, turned away from him. 
And when God came back to his people in person, the story of Jesus is meaningless unless that's what it's about. He wept at the tomb of his friend. Paul, St. Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit groaning within us as we ourselves groan with the pain of the whole creation. The ancient doctrine of the Trinity teaches us to recognize the one God in the tears of Jesus and the anguish of the Spirit. It is no part of the Christian vocation then to be able to explain what's happening and why. In fact, it's part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain and lament instead. As the Spirit laments within us, so we become, even in our self-isolation, small shrines where the presence and healing love of God can dwell. And out of that, there can emerge new possibilities, new acts of kindness, and new hope. So what time is it? I think these words from the, uh, the American folk rocker, James uh, McMurtry, they capture how I'm feeling today about that question. It says, staring down that long, steep slope, we gather round and hold out hope because at the end of the rope, there's a little more rope most times. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.